Good morning. I'm finishing up the last of three sermons. Pastor Brett and I have been sort of sharing, sharing the pulpit here this summer. He's been doing a series on the Ten Commandments, but I've been talking about movies. <clears throat> Just to let you know our respective spiritualities. But I spoke a message a few weeks ago, a few weeks back, the first one actually, entitled, We Need a Bigger Boat. That all of us find ourselves in some type of wave or storm of life where we need God to get bigger rather than the waves getting bigger. And then I followed up that one with a, title, uh, a message entitled, We're Not in Kansas Anymore. That we look around and we find ourselves in certain things happening around our culture. And who would have known that even post speaking that message, some horrendous things that happened in our nation immediately following that message. We look around and we find ourselves in very strange environs many times. And I'm not talking about just in just your family. You look around the table and say, who are these people? It's not what I'm talking about. But we look around us and we, we find very much like a nation in exile. In Jeremiah 29, we see that God's given us specific instructions for that moment. But I want to finish this little series today with a message entitled Band of Brothers, Life Together. Tremendous series of movies about veterans. It's amazing. But I want us to hear well. You know, we can, we can come on a Sunday or a Wednesday. We can receive a message and we can get instructions for our life, how to have a better marriage, how to how to put more money in our pockets, how to do X, Y, and Z, or we can, maybe we can become more theologically astute, or we can hear things, if you wish, with the ears of the Spirit. Revelation 2 and 3, to him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And I want you to hear today something prophetically, not just informationally, because I believe this has tremendous impact for us, not only now, but in the season to come. God had a busy few days in Scripture. I don't know what you did over the past six days. Uh, God made everything. And after, after every, the end of every day, he looked back and he said, it's good, it's good. He made man and he said, it's very good. But then he looked and he said, when he saw that there was no helper suitable for that man, interesting, the first time we see this declared in Scripture, God said, now that's not good. And so we know that God made woman for man. And all the men said, amen. amen. We're very happy he did that. That God didn't say, Cocker Spaniel will do. I am very happy that God created women for men. Thank you very much. That God looked down and he said, you know what? Men are pathetic by themselves. They need women around because they would have, their personal hygiene would be terrible and they would eat at McDonald's every day. So God made community first with himself as man is walking with God in fellowship and then with this first family this woman. 
But we live in a culture that the idea of community has more to do with some type of online presence or connectivity than the reality of doing life together. Of fulfilling something that God has hardwired in the human soul, which is not to be alone. It's hardwired inside of you and me. Sebastian Younger has just written a book entitled Tribe. It's not a Christian book. It's a sociological book. It's a very smart man that wrote it. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to excerpt part of this book in a moment, but you're going to hear words like evolution and primates. This guy's got a, a different understanding than you and I do in terms of how things work. We know God made it, correct? Thank you very much. All right. We're, very big, we're big creationists here. All right. But let me, let me quote this book. There are obvious stresses on a person in a group, but there may be even greater stresses on a person in isolation. Most primates, including humans, are intensely social. And there are very few instances of lone primates surviving in the wild. A modern soldier returning from combat or a survivor of Sarajevo goes from the kind of close-knit group that humans evolved for, and I might add, we were created for, back into a society where most people work outside of the home, children are educated by strangers, families are isolated from wider communities, and personal gain almost completely eclipses the collective good. Whatever the technological advances of modern society, the individualized lifestyles that those technologies spawn seem to be deep, brutalizing to the human spirit. In this same book, he quotes anthropologist Sharon Abramitz, who served in the Peace Court at Ivory Coast during the Civil War there in 2002. And she said it this way, You'll have to be prepared to say we are not a good society, that we are an anti-human society. Strong, I'm not sure I completely agree with that statement, but it's a strong statement. Simply meaning that the forces of technology, our commutes, 60 to 80 hour work weeks, all of these things are serving to keep us very busy but very disconnected simultaneously. We live at once in the most connected, disconnected society in all of history. I think you would agree with that. Even God himself expresses fellowship in the form of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even God expresses himself as three. But there's a challenge of doing life together. Being in community. One is just the fact that folks are folks. You realize that conflict entered the world as soon as there was a second person in the, in the world. I mean, think about that for a moment. We didn't, we didn't need a village. We didn't need a nation. We didn't need a family reunion. All it took was one more, and the next thing we got is that woman. So the problem with living in community 
is where there's more than one, you're going to have what? Conflict. Uh-oh. How do you do this? Communal health over individual rights. Paul, when he was speaking of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, when he gets to chapter 14, he talks about greater gifts. But how did he define greater gifts? The ones that had the capacity inherent in them to do what? Help other people. To edify, Scripture says, others. We talk about community. We have, to, we have to talk about issues of government. What is it? How does it properly function? And then we have to define what is the culture in a given community. Just to name a few. First Peter, the second chapter, God begins to talk about his people. Pastor Stephen talked this morning about us being a chosen people. Listen to this passage. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, capital S stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, small s, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Verse 9, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. A people is not just a collection of persons individuals that just kind of gathered together. God's building something different than that. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people. We move from the indefinite article, a people, a collection of folk, to the people. Something very specific that God has called together and he's put his mark upon. You're chosen, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. See, part of corporate identity, it's a relegation of our individual identity for the integrity and the unity of the whole. That's hard for us. I mean, we come together in marriage, and marriages that don't work, this is my food, this is my money, this is my space, this is my part of the closet, this is my half of the bed, this is my, you know what I'm talking about. All the pastors up here in the front row say, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> because it's the my, it's the individual, my precious. I mean, it's all of the stuff that we bring that, you, you, you know. But it's all of a sudden now it becomes something, something different. Something, if you wish, holy other. You realize a marriage is not just two folk that have decided to cohabitate and not kill each other. But marriage becomes something that the Bible declares as mysterious. I said, you're right about that. It's the spookiest thing ever. No, but 
it's, it's a mystery, Paul writes in Ephesians. And he says, now I'm talking about Christ in the church. But could it be that part of that mystery is that God brings these two people together and forms them into something that becomes a holy other? H-O-L-Y other and W-H-O-L-L-Y other. He does the same thing with the church. He turns the church into something that's not just a bunch of individuals that want to see their life live better. But he turns it into this mysterious thing called the bride that he's coming back for. Wow. It's powerful. And inasmuch as God identifies us as his people, he makes us into a people. God also chooses us and he leads us in that placement. You know, I spent a lot of my Christian life thinking I really had a choice in all this. After 40 years of walking with God, yeah, you laugh. I'm beginning to realize now that the essence of my walk with God is just a grief faster. Honestly. We think, oh, I'm an intercessor. I can change God's mind. You ain't Moses. <laughs> Scripture says, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. That's Paul's words, not mine. And God places us if we will allow that placement. This is the difference in a stumbling stone in a building block. If we will allow God to make us into a building block, just like a master mason, he takes that stone and he places it where he wants it. Different sermon. Psalm 68 says he sets the lonely in families. So he places us into relationships, marriage, friends, work and living environs. He makes us into a people, but then he has to function and dwell in the midst of that people for that house to stand and remain. A couple of weeks ago, we, we looked at Jeremiah 29, the instructions of a church, of a, of a nation in exile. And this morning, in a moment, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look at the birth of the church which was birthed in a similarly hostile environment. The same forces that got Jesus crucified were still in existence when this early church was birthed. Many of these early believers would be martyred for their faith. We see this upper room experience of the 120, and we think, oh, this was a Holy Ghost moment. They were hiding out. They remembered it hadn't been that long until they saw their leader crucified. And the same forces of religion and the same terror of Rome still existed during the birth of this church. So what does a corporate people, a community, look and act like? First of all, we need to define some terms by way of introduction. Community has a societal definition. Meaning it's just some, any social unit sharing common values. But there's also a biological definition of interacting organisms sharing a common space. So we can define then a community as broadly 
as a gathering or assembly of common people of common values, sharing space, interacting, and interdependent on one another. That's community. Younger in his book defines it this way. The earliest and most basic definition of community would be the group of people that you would both help feed and help defend. The most basic definition of community are those people that you would help feed and help defend. Look around the room for a minute. Say, I don't know who that is. We sit in the same section every week because sociologically I know that I like this seat. <laughs> so unless somebody hadn't figured it out and is sitting in my chair on a Sunday morning and they should know better, and if you are a guest, I'll give you a couple of weeks to figure it out, but find another one because this is my chair. <laughs> Everybody go, ha, 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 ha. And so we look to the left and to the right and we see a familiar face that we see for the 60 minutes that we're in that chair. But that didn't make us community. People that we would defend, people that we would feed, people that we would give resources to, don't even know who they are. Wow. And let me say to you that that's not the expectation driven out of what we do here on Sunday. This isn't the whole package. One has to understand what this is and then what it is not. It's a moment of corporate worship, exhortation, teaching from the word. It's great. But let me just tell you, coming here once a week for 60 minutes is not community. Or maybe you're part of the culture. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Three E's, hallelujah, <laughs> multicultural, hallelujah. So we adopt the language of the Grace Covenant Church culture, but it doesn't mean that we're part of the community. Getting ahead, and I'm in trouble already. You see, another word we have to define in having this discussion is what is the difference in culture and community? Because there's a mass confusion between the two things. That word culture simply means that which distinguishes any group of people, including language, beliefs, customs, institutions, etc. That's what culture is. Every one of us have a culture. Our family has a culture. You get together at the 4th of July or you get together at, at a family reunion, you realize, whoo, <laughs> Jesus wept. But this word culture is an ancient term which literally means cultivation. It's an agricultural term. Developed, Cicero used it, cultura anime, which means the culture of the soul. Do you realize every group has a culture? They have a philosophical soul. We have it as Christians. Come on. You don't get around your Christian friends and start dropping F-bombs. Well, maybe you do, but we need, we, need to, we need to talk about your small group dynamic just for a moment, maybe. 
But this I can guarantee you, you've not dropped an F-bomb around Pastor Brett. I can tell you that right now. But we've got, but we've got these, these, these cultures. Something gets cultivated on the inside of us. We may not know where it came from, but it's, it's, it's there. It comes out in a given moment. But here's the problem. You can have culture and not have community. A community will have its own culture. It will develop. The challenge for the church is we've substituted these two words, and they're not interchangeable. A Pew Research survey some years ago, and I know that, you know, you make any numbers say anything, 78.4% who describe themselves as Christian, or at least holding to Christian values. Now, let's pretend for a moment that that number holds true. That would mean that today, somewhere around 5 million people in the greater D.C. metropolitan community would be in church. How many of you know if there were 5 million folks in church on Sunday that a lot of what you're going to read about in the paper tomorrow wouldn't be happening? So first of all, we realize that these are people that they may associate with Christian culture, but they're not part of Christian community. Because this is not how folk interact with one another. Culture. Oh, I follow Jesus. I don't need all these folks. You know, it's amazing how good you can feel about yourself until you get around some other people. I mean, you're really feeling strong, aren't you? I'm holy, I'm righteous, me and Jesus. I, I could be the fourth person of the Trinity right now. I'm just, I am just so, I'm just so close. And then you hear one of your children assault another child in your home. Would you shut up? <laughs> or somebody's blowing your phone up. or You know what I'm talking about. And it's a matter of, I, this would be great with all these other idiots bothering me and messing with my righteousness. <laughs> but the problem is, it's in the context of community that your discipleship gets worked out. I'd love to tell you that you and Jesus could go get locked up in a room somewhere for a few years and you would come out with wings. Let me just tell you, it doesn't work that way. God says, here, I'm going to put you in the middle of some aggravating folk. <laughs> to draw out everything aggravating in you. <laughs> bon appetit. And he will do that in marriage. He will do that in your workplace. He said, oh, please don't say that. Because I work for the Antichrist and for Pharaoh. <laughs> don't tell me that he placed me in that spot to work something out in me. I didn't say it. I just inferred it. And yet Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. Love these folk. As a matter of fact, if you don't, you don't love me. And all this little, you know, little hippity hop thing that you do on Sunday for 15 to 18 minutes. Let me just tell you, it's all a lie. Because there's no way you can love me and not love these people. But it's hard. 
It's hard. And we adopt the culture easily enough. I mean, we learn the secret handshakes and, again, the praise of the Lord's and the fish on the bumper and, you know, what to say when the right, the, the, the right group of folk and the plastic Jesus from the, you know, from the mirror there. And I hope you don't have one of those, but... <laughs> Let me, give you some, let me give you some distinctions between culture and community. One, community is marked by love, culture simply by a shared language. Culture can be defined as simply as a shared ethnicity. Community must share a common ethos. Community integrates and is inclusive. Culture tends to isolate and become exclusive. Them. In culture, there's no membership standards or requirements. In community, there are rules for life together. Culture is easy. Community is hard. Culture is, culture is disposable and replaceable. Community is irreplaceable. Culture is an artificial flavor. It tastes a lot like the real thing, but it's sadly deficient. It most never know the difference. Culture is ideological. Community is where that ideology gets worked out. You know, we have these ideas about the perfect marriage, the perfect job, the perfect church, and it's always based on how we're going to interact with somebody else. Come on. Our ideology. We all have it. I had one. Don't know where this came from. Children, child rearing. You know, you're an expert. You are an expert. In how to raise a child when you're single. Right. <laughs> you see a kid acting the fool in the Walmart and you walking by, you're 24, you're single. I know what I'd do. <laughs> I know exactly. Oh, yeah. I know. I, I read the book. <laughs> Two years later, it's your child acting the fool in the Walmart. And you have no answers left. None. Zero. I had a theory about babies. Same thing. In Lamaze class. Said, my child, we're not going to do pacifiers. Uh, who knows where that comes from? That's just, that's just a, it's just the broken mind of an early 20-year-old. No, we're not doing pacifiers. They're, they're a lie. Deceptive. Not going to do it. At the end of week one, every style, every brand made, one in every room, one hung around my neck, three in the glove compartment, and half of them dipped in Domitap. After the third night, when everything in your body hurts that you didn't know was there to hurt from lack of sleep, get a pacifier. Get another one. One for him and one for me. But we step into all of these things with these, 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 these thoughts, these ideologies. This is what it's going to be like, Pastor Sean. This is what marriage is going to be like. 
(laughs) And we step into larger community with those same ideas. Oh, this church is going to be different. This group of people is going to be different. They're not going to hurt me. They're going to understand me. They're going to make a place for my, how special I am. They're going to carve a slot for my individuality. You know what I'm talking about. Everybody's going, <laughs> everybody nervous again. And in as much as we see rules for life that developed as Israel was in Babylon and Jeremiah we see some similar rules that the early church did in Acts chapter 2. Verse 42 through 47, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, to prayer. Everyone filled with all signs and wonders, believers together, everything in common, selling their stuff, giving it away. Every day they met. Wow. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And God added to their number. They devoted themselves. The Greek word there is proskotereo. It's a strong word that means a single-minded fidelity to a course of action. This wasn't something that just developed. But they were committed to this. They were devoted that these are the things that we're going to do. They weren't casual. They were committed to the fellowship. Te koinonia. Again, a specific, definite article. The. Something that was well thought through. It was crafted. It was deliberate. And it says every day. I've intensely studied the Greek on this term. It means every day. Every day that ended in a Y, it means they were together. And you say, champ, have you looked at my schedule? I'm working 80 hours a week. I got an hour commute in each direction. I got ball games on the weekend. I got, I've got a yard. To get. You don't understand my life. I got it. I got it. I hear you. Yes. We are busy. We live in a busy culture. But it doesn't deny how you and I are made. Fellowship is inconvenient. Because relationships require work. How do we do this? Mechanically. We have these things called small groups. There he goes again, pushing a church program on us. One more thing to do and put on my calendar and have to get in the car and go to. Thank you, Pastor Jim. Listen to me carefully. You can develop community either in or out of crisis. That's not a threat. You know, it's an amazing thing after 911. Everybody's in the street. Rich, poor, white, black, didn't matter. Everybody just, what can I do? 
Amazing. I lived in a city in North Carolina that somewhere around half the city was completely inundated, flooded, one of those 500-year meteorological events. People losing everything. It didn't matter in that moment which side of town you lived on because let me tell you, when the water came up, when it talks about it rains on the just and the unjust, let me tell you, when your house gets flooded, the, the water comes into homes of the just and the unjust. We started pulling out carpet and drywall. It didn't matter. Are you a Christian? Sorry, we can't help you. That didn't become the question. You go to a funeral. All of a sudden, families together. I mean, you forget about all the weirdness from the last family reunion. But in that moment of crisis, all of a sudden, the community of family, it becomes real, doesn't it? It's a matter of, you know what? I love you. I don't like you, but I love you. And we've been acting like fools, and we need to figure this out. It happens. But what do we have to do then? Colossians gives us some picture. It says, as God's chosen people, clothe yourselves. You know, one of the things that marks somebody growing up is they can dress themselves. Correct? Now, wives, you might not think your husband can do that so well. I understand. That's, that's why we have granimals. Okay, so just clump the things together in our closet and just point us in that direction and we'll be okay. But for the most part, children can't dress themselves, can they? They can't figure out what to put on first. They can't tie their shoes, which is why God made Velcro. But nevertheless, kids, kids have a hard time with this whole dressing thing. But when it says clothe yourselves is intimating there's some sense of what? Maturity. They hear the garments. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. They're the garments you put on. And then it says forgive and forbear. What does that mean? Oh, I forgive you, but I'm not going to forget. I know who you are. Let me tell you. Jesus said he said he knew what was in the heart of a man. And yet we don't see Jesus withholding anything. Forbearing means, you know what? I'm going to put up with your weirdness. And when your weirdness becomes overbearing, I'm going to forgive you. And if I can't, then Jesus through me will. Many times we think forgiveness is something that's all emotional in its orientation. Let me tell you, real forgiveness has to be instigated by the Holy Spirit. God has to do something through you. I can't forgive that family member. I can't forgive that group of people. I can't forgive X, Y, and Z. Then ask Jesus to do it through you. If there's anything Jesus specializes in, it's forgiveness. We talk about the ministry of the Holy Ghost, and we talk about spiritual gifts, and we talk about all of these things that God is on the inside of us. Then let the Spirit of Christ move through you to forgive and forbear. And it says, bind all these together with love. It's that final thing that makes it all work together. Scripture is very clear. You will know them by their, not whether they got a fish on the car, 
Not whether or not they go to ex, they, they go to this church or that church over there, or they've got the right language around the proverbial water cooler. But the fact that they love you, that's how they'll know. And they love one another. Let me tell you, when we get this down, evangelism won't become something we do anymore. But listen to me, ladies and gentlemen, in closing. The world is looking for people much different. They're not looking for an improved version of themselves. They're looking for something unique. They're looking, they're, they're looking for something that is of heaven, of a group of people. Like in the book of Acts, chapters 2 and chapters 5, it says folks were looking on. They were afraid of them, but they couldn't stay away, and God added to their number. Does God see anything else different about our community? Or can all they see is a finger-wagging culture that says, you're not and you shouldn't be? We have three E's here at Grace Covenant Church. The first is the main thing. The pastor said years ago, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is that we encounter Christ. Because the other two don't work without that one. The second is experiencing community. You have to experience it. What does that mean? You have to be there. And it takes Christ dwelling in our midst to be able to do community. And then lastly, we have something then that we can export and invite people to. And that is to expand the kingdom. We're devoted to these things here at Grace. A band of brothers. And ladies, I know that's a uniquely masculine term. But just work with me for a moment. That term band of brothers was not just crafted by Spielberg for a movie. It was actually used a long time ago by Shakespeare. The St. Crispin's Day speech. For the Battle of Agincourt in 1415, he gives Henry's fictional or his, his recollection of, of this account. Now, this is Shakespeare. From this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, but he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed. They were not here. And hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. We're called to do life together as a band of brothers. And that's more than just convocation. Liturgy, but it's by worship as we work and as we war together. This is how we become a band of brothers. Pray with me.